Father, we, we sing that from a place of reality, God, that you are good and you're always good. Lord, our circumstances sometimes don't tell us that. Sometimes our emotions lie to us and tell us that's not always true. God, the truth and the reality is, is that you are good. And you're good to us. Lord, we are sinners. We, are, we were far from you and you came at us with grace and you chased us down and you made us your own. You adopted us. You've given us new identity. You've given us a new destiny, Lord. And you're ever-present in our times of trouble. You are good. We worship you this morning. We thank you for being so extremely, amazingly good. That's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm not Paul. Um, but I want to bring us to Acts chapter 4 today. And as we jump into that, I just want to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever had like a friend or a relative that was annoyingly in love? You ever had that person? You know what I mean? Like, you know, young love. We get, we get kind of cynical about it as we go on. But really deep down inside, we kind of hope that's what our spouses like talk about us, you know, when, they're, when we're not around, right? Two people who simply can't have a conversation without br- braggingly bringing in their spouse's name or their boyfriend or girlfriend's name, you know, bringing it out of the hat and thrusting it into every given topic. Like they're obsessed. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like you're sitting there and you're like, dude, I get it. She's awesome. But we were talking about my recent root canal and her eye color is irrelevant to that. All right. We're talking about my pain for a second. But they push past, right? Their passion pushes past the point of really caring what you think. You know what I'm talking about? They just, they think the entire world needs to know how amazing this person is that they found. And, and, you know, this holds true for lesser things, too, obviously. Like, some people love football at this level, or, or movies, or fishing, or politics, have mercy on you. But, you know, we, we, we almost try to dodge those conversations when we know people are like that, right? Like, we try to change the topics, but nothing works, right? Their finger's on the launch button, and they're getting ready to, to bring with, blast us with the wonder of their experience and the passion of whatever it is, right? It's kind of like a disease, if we could label it, you know? It's, it's we could call it the can't help it, right? They can't help but bring it up, right? They're just going to bring it up no matter what because it's too important to them. It's, it's too consuming. It's too passionate, right? They think that everyone in the world should feel the same. I want you to hold that and lock that in your brain as we go to Acts and read today in, in Acts chapter 4. But here's what's happened. This extraordinary miracle has taken place in Acts chapter 3 in Solomon's portico where a, a, a lame man who's been lame for a long time, his whole life. In fact, it says he was 40 years old in verse 22. And he's probably been brought to this place day by day by friends or family to beg for alms. And they would have been seen. Everybody kind of knew who this person was. Now this man, he's been healed in the name of Jesus. Now he's running out leaping and praising God, right? And here he is clinging to Peter and John while Peter tells the good news of Jesus and how this has happened. And what we're coming to in the scripture today is Peter and John are going to be brought in to give an account before the Jewish Sanhedrin as to why, how these events have happened. Now, as we go there, I just kind of want to get this in your head. Like, Jesus kind of promised his, his, his disciples that they can expect a few things, right? One is, you're going to be absurdly happy 
But also, like, you're going to be, and you're going to be completely fearless, but you're also going to be in constant trouble, right? And that's what's happening here. They are in trouble. And Jesus had told them this. He says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. That was just a couple of months ago. And now we're barely a few weeks past Pentecost. Acts chapter 4, verse 1, read with me. It says, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, your scripture might say, greatly disturbed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So all you people who fill in blanks today, I'm going to be your best friend. I'm going to fill in blanks, and then we're going to kind of go backwards through it. So here's your blanks. Four different responses to the name of Jesus. So when the gospel is preached, these are, sort of, these are the four kind of responses you can expect. One, it's met with repentance and faith, which is what we hope for, right? That's what we get excited about. That's what we do this for. The other, though, is it also could be met with peaceful reception and interest. So it's a person of peace who's leaning in, listening. They're curious. They want to know more. And then also you got rejection. Rejection and avoidance or coldness, right? They just reject. They don't want to hear it. They walk away. And then the last one is you have hostility and pushback. Now, hostility and pushback, that's going to be the one that we're dealing with here today, and we're going to cap on on that, because that's the one that's going to require the most courage, actually the most love from believers. See, light and darkness, they're not friends. As we have seen already from the life of Jesus and what happened with him, and after his resurrection, we've already seen this, there's people who are turning to Christ and those who are turning away from Christ, and then those who are turning aggressively against the name of Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus told them, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Jesus had prepared his guys for exactly this moment. He had told them that they would be persecuted for his namesake. He said, if they've come at me and they do this to me, what do you think they're going to do to you? I want you to read this next passage with me before we dive into the rest of the story. Because I believe what you'll see is Peter was reflecting on these past conversations that he had, he had received from Jesus, even as he's being arrested. And by the way, here's the charges. There's a lame man and he's been healed. How dare you? But there's a sense in which you can see that that doesn't shock Peter. He's, not, he's, he's steady in all of this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Here's the teaching of Jesus. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they'll deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you're to say. For, you are to say will be, for what you're to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. I want you to pause for a minute, because here's the thing. You would think, wouldn't you, that the healing of a cripple in the temple would have brought the Sanhedrin joy. <laughs> 
You would think that. But these people, they're so called up in their rules and their regulations. And they're especially obsessed with the name of Jesus and what it's doing and wrecking and wreaking havoc in their culture. Here's the thing. When people believe a lie to be true, the belief has a tenacity about it. And that tenacity, it often has to be, has to be provoked when challenged by truth. It's provoked when you challenge it with truth. And that has to happen before it can be shaken and broken. The Sadducees are like a group like this. Basically, the Sanhedrin was like a 70-member Supreme Court of ancient Israel. They had both Sadducees and Pharisees as its members, which were two different sects of Judaism. The temple was the Sadducees' sort of locus of control, and the Pharisees were more over all the synagogues. Both of them honored Moses and the law, and both had political power, although the Sadducees were more political elitist. They were more interested in being friends with Rome for wealth and political gain. The Pharisees, they were more connected with the common people, and they had their respect. Sadducees were more literal in their affirmation and interpretation of the text of Scripture, and Pharisees gave oral tradition, equal authority to the the text of Scripture, the written Word of God. Now, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection or afterlife. The soul died at death. The Pharisees, they did believe in the resurrection and judgment and angels and demons and so forth. So the Pharisees, they didn't like Jesus because he was calling them always out on their man-made traditions that held no value whatsoever, but it gave them control and power over the common people. The Sadducees, they didn't really have that many run-ins with Jesus, and they sort of ignored him until they began to fear that it might shake their political game and they'd bring unwanted Roman attention to all of them. But these two parties, they set aside their differences and they united to conspire against Jesus and have him crucified and put this threat away from both of them. And they thought they succeeded, except now. Except now there's all these witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. There's these powerful miracles happening around them that Jesus once did. It's coming now and it's validating the authority and the message that these men of Jesus are saying. Here comes Peter. Peter's got a teaching that's flying in their faces with divine evidence, mind you. They're wrong about so much. Here's what happens. They swoop in, they arrest Peter and John, hoping that they can minimize the damage. But it's too late. You see, at Pentecost, it was a noticeable disturbance, right? It really rocked their religious pond when 3,000 people put their faith in Jesus on that day. It says that 3,000 souls, men, women, and children, put their faith. But here it's going well beyond that. In fact, if you look at the, the language there, at Pentecost, it was 3,000 souls. Here it says that the number came to about 5,000 men. So if you actually did the math and included women and children in that number, you're probably talking more in the range of about 15,000. There, there is reason for annoyance, I would even say for panic, for these people, right? This is no small spark. Their city is on fire in the name of Jesus. What are they going to do? See, here's the thing, you you got to understand, they're, they're going to try with all their heart to put this out. But you cannot stop the powerful name of Jesus. He's reality. He's not a wishful thought. He's not a myth. He is alive and reigning king. And he'll do everything that he promised to do, and he's doing it right now. It's happening in front of their faces. For us as believers, here's what that means. We've got to understand this. If we're going to be light, if we're going to share the gospel, we should expect pushback. We should. And if we're not experiencing pushback, then perhaps we're no threat to the enemy. 
Why do we proclaim the name of Jesus? Why would we go to that end? Why would we be willing to endure these kind of things? Why would we do that? Bottom line, if you don't walk away with anything, if you're tired and you're going to go to sleep and the rest of the sermon, let me give you this. Here it is. We preach the name of Jesus because there is no other name. There's no other name. There's no other way. There's no other hope for humanity. It is a choice between reality and fantasy, between truth and deception. Acts chapter 4, verse 5, pick up with me. It says, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all those who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which, by which we must be saved. See, they're, they're not denying the miracles happened. They can't. How did you do this? That's the question. And by the way, they're not asking that question to understand or so that they could consider the truth. They want to know what kind of political wall it's going to take to build around this event. They're going to know how to put out the fire, how to put this movement away and how to stop it. So that they don't lose their power. They don't lose their way of life. So they asked Peter, how do you do it? And Peter does the very same thing that got him into prison in the first place. He preaches the gospel. He preaches about Jesus. This is his third sermon. Chapter 2 he preaches. Chapter 3 he preaches. Right here in chapter 4 he's preaching. And he's doing, of course, what he would later exhort his readers in the first epistle, his first epistle to do. Be ready, he would tell them. To give a reason for the hope that lies within you. See, Peter's looking forward and he knows that these people, they're going to face terrible, terrible persecution. Some of them are going to lose their lives. And Peter could see that coming. And so he's writing them and he's telling them, you're going to have to be strong. You're going to have to be courageous and with gentleness and with respect. But you're going to have to be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. You know, he doesn't consider the risk, does he, when you're reading this? He doesn't say, time out, let me get a lawyer and see how this is going to pan out for me. He doesn't water it down. I was reading this and I'm thinking, how in the world? Like, how is this coming out of this former fisherman? I mean, by the way, this is Peter after all, right? You got to, almost got to stop and pinch yourself because this is a man who just a couple of months previous was cowering, frightened by this Sanhedrin body, cussing and swearing that he didn't know Jesus whatsoever. What has happened in such a short period of time to make this change come about in this man? Two things have happened. One, if you're writing notes, here we go. Resurrection. Resurrection's happened. That's where his power comes from. That's where his confidence comes from. Because the resurrection validated everything that Jesus had taught and promised them about himself and the redemption of everybody. The resurrection sets Christianity apart from all religions of the world. Our leader lives and reigns. He's alive. That made it all true. And by the way, we share in his resurrection. 
This isn't just something that Jesus experienced. We experience it in Christ Jesus. We were once dead and we're alive again. The resurrection did it. The other thing, this is the Holy Spirit. The Acts of the Apostles suggest that in circumstances of need, of stress, of trial, of persecution, the Spirit comes and He enables and He gives power and He gives supernatural boldness. As you read through the book of Acts, the, the gospel is going to spread throughout all the, all the world, the ancient world. But right now, it's confined to the city of Jerusalem. And the author, Luke, is going to draw attention to one particular feature in verse 8. I want you to look at it. It says that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that Luke is saying more there than just something that was true of Peter since the day of Pentecost. Because you remember on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit filled all of them. I don't think Luke is saying, oh, and by the way, Peter's still filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that Luke is saying here, as he'll say again in verse 31, for others who live in Jerusalem, that there's a special and there's a particular feeling, empowering and enabling of the Holy Spirit that's coming and aiding Peter to help him meet the pressure, to meet the threats of the hour, namely the persecution that's about to break out. And the courage and the boldness that particular circumstance is a result of the feeling and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Just like Jesus said it would be in Matthew chapter 10, where he said, don't worry about what you will say, because the Spirit of the Father is going to put words in your mouth and you'll say what he tells you to say. Guys, a phenomenal growth has happened in the church here. It is on fire. Can I tell you something? I think it's right, and I think it's proper that we would pray that we would see that again. I think it's right that we would pray that God would come just as he has done in various centuries and periods of time when he's come and he's caused his church to grow, like the prophet Isaiah says, like a nation born in one day, just like what we're seeing here. The times of refreshing would come. Pray that in this day and age that God would pour out his spirit and draw men and women in great numbers to respond to the gospel, to repent of their sins, that the bold preaching of God's word would take place in his church, that we would see a phenomenal work of God, a Holy Spirit movement of God. I hope that that's what we're praying for because it's right that we do. So what do we preach? What do we preach if we get this opportunity and we're standing and we have this moment to say something? What do we preach? We preach a few things. First, we preach the exclusivity of Jesus. Jesus as the fulfillment of all God's promises for man's redemption. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. We preach the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. We preach repentance from sin. And from false sources of faith for salvation. We don't put our faith in ourselves. We don't put our faith in other religions or success as the world measures it. Or our works and good works. And finally we preach faith and trust. A submissive faith to the work and the person of Jesus. That's what happens here. Peter preaches the one name that changes everything. Not just a crippled man's legs. But the name that sets sinners free, that brings dead people to life, the name of the resurrected Savior and King of mankind, the name of Jesus. And if you'll notice, Peter doesn't pull any punches. He's not calling them to simply believe in Jesus. He's calling them to repent and believe. 
to turn from their sins and the lies that they've been holding on and surrender to Jesus. And so with clarity, he gives them the reality of their dilemma and the reality that their only hope for salvation is Jesus. And by the way, Christian, it is very important in this day and age that we are very, very clear when we preach the gospel. The world is confusing enough. The messages are murky enough. We cannot be the same. People need the truth and they need it clearly said. Look at the chosen words of Peter to these people. These stung a little bit. He says, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene is the name that this has happened by. That's how Peter refers to him. That's probably not a term of endearment, by the way. It may well have been the term that was given to Peter and John and the early disciples that they were followers of Jesus the Nazarene. But if you remember, do you remember when Nathaniel said that what good can come out of Nazareth? Do you remember? It's kind of insulting. In other words, Nazareth was up in the north. It was like the hill country. It's kind of like us saying out of the boonies, right? This is the boonies. And these disciples were followers of a country prophet from the boonies. It insulted the Sanhedrin. And it's their teaching in verse 2 that's got them annoyed and disturbed. And if you remember at the beginning, and Luke was saying those four characteristics of the early church, what did they devote themselves to? To the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. What was the teaching? What were they talking about? What's the doctrine? It was all about Jesus. It was all about him. They were constantly talking about Jesus. They were talking about his work. They were talking about his miracles. They were talking about his life. They were talking about him in Jerusalem and his death there in Calvary. They were talking about the resurrection, especially the resurrection, the physical manifestation of the human body of Jesus after he'd been dead for three days. That's crazy. They're talking about that. And then Peter shifts to another analogy to just drive it on in for them. It says the stone has become the cornerstone. Listen, Basically what Peter is saying to these people, and they understood. Everything about our history and religion and beliefs is held together and made true and validated in Jesus Christ. I think Peter had a fascination with rocks and stones. I think every time Peter went by building, he probably paused ever since Jesus said to Peter in, in Caesarea Philippi, you are the rock and on this rock I will build my church. And on the profession of Peter that Jesus is the son of the living God, I think Peter, when he couldn't see a rock or stone without it making him think about Jesus and who Jesus was. And so he quotes here in Psalm 118, what he will quote later in his epistle, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In other words, this is what he was saying to them, you tossed him to the side. You tossed him to the side. You were all about this religion and this law and this temple, your man-made traditions. But everything was pointing to Jesus, and you did away with him. But fellas, Sanhedrin, you don't get to do that. You don't have that kind of authority. You see, this is about God's kingdom. This is about his people. This is about his promise. This is about his Messiah. And Jesus is the epicenter of it all. You thought you killed him. And now he stands. He reigns supreme. You need to repent and turn. And Peter declares again with absolute, the absolute exclusivity of Jesus. He says, there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
What an extraordinary statement that is. What an arrogant statement that is. Unless it's true. Unless it's true that Buddhism cannot save, or Islam cannot save, or that Hinduism cannot save, or Shintoism cannot save, that only Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ, saves. You know, in in our postmodern world, it's not the statement that Jesus saves that's offensive. In fact, that's welcomed. It's the statement that only Jesus saves that's offensive to the world. We're no longer dealing with a logic, reality-seeking culture. We're dealing with emotionally-centric people where my feelings determine reality. They determine what's true. That's why there can be two opposing truths, and they both be true. It just depends on how the person holding them feels about it. I thought that was just people, right, in in prosperous post-Christian nations like ours. I I, I beg to differ. I was riding on a, a plane once going to Nairobi, Kenya, and I was coming out of Dubai, and I sat down next to a young Muslim man, and he was dressed in a business suit on a business trip. We struck up a conversation, and I had my Bible out, and, and uh, he was asking me, are you a Christian? I said, yes, and he says, I'm, I'm a Muslim, and I said, okay, and you know, he says, so where, where are you going? I said, well, we're going on a mission trip. I have some students here. We're going to go meet with some other Christians, and we're going to do some work in, in some communities that are desperate to need love and care, and we're going to share the name of Jesus. And the man looked at me, and he said, you know, we're not very different. I said, interesting. I thought we were. <laughs> we're both sinners. You're right. Um, he says, you know, the Jews and us and you, we're not different. The Jews, they have a prophet. His name's Moses. You guys have a prophet. He's Jesus. We just have the latest prophet of Muhammad, but we all worship the same God. And I said, that's that's a really interesting take on it. I said, you know, Jesus actually claimed to be God. He said, oh, that's just a misinterpretation of your scriptures. I'm like, I again beg to differ. And I said, you know, if he claimed to be God and he's just a prophet, that makes him a liar, which makes him not such a good person. You're saying he's good. And I said, that's what he claimed. And He says, well, brother, he says, you know, we're all at the base of a mountain and God is called by the different names, but he's the same God and we're all going to get to him. We're going to come up different sides of the mountain. And I told him, I said, no, see, here's the difference in Christianity and your religion. See, you believe that you have what it takes to touch that mountain and to go up it. I believe that God looked at us and we are not good enough nor capable of touching the mountain and going up it. I believe that God loves us so much, though, that he came down the mountain and he met us in our sins and he made a way and he did it through his own son, Jesus. There's a lot of confusion out there. It's a tragedy. It's a train wreck. When we live like God is who I say he is, we essentially are only saying that I'm God because I determine truth and reality. I invent God in my image and I worship him. Is it any wonder then? Is it any wonder that the culture grows hostile to the declaration of the name of Jesus as the only way to heaven? Is it any wonder that the American church also, who has faced little pushback in comparison to the church worldwide, has grown intimidated and quiet and paralyzed? I think it's interesting in this passage, the boldness of Peter, right? We're being pressured to water down our message, yet here's Peter under intense threat, and he's joyfully and boldly and unashamedly proclaiming the gospel. And he's reflecting, of course, what he had heard Jesus say when Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. 
I think the most important part of what we're talking about, one, is you got to have that locked in your head. Jesus is the only way. But what motivates a fearless faith like that? Let me give you the blanks. This does not mean you can leave. (laughs) Full confidence in the truth. That includes study and knowledge and logical conclusions about the facts. We are not in a make-believe religion. You don't have to be unintelligent about your faith. You can study. You can know. We're talking about history. We're not talking about mythology. Dig in. Look it up. Research it. Google it. I mean, come on. How easy is it now, right? We need to have full confidence in the truth. But more than that, there has to be personal life transformation that has resulted from the grace work of Jesus and the ongoing experiencing of the constant, overwhelming love and presence of God. And that brings us to number three, passionate, responsive love and grateful loyalty that naturally is produced in an intimate relationship with Jesus. Look at verse 13. One of my favorite verses. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them that's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people. Can't have lame people walking, right? Let us warn them to speak no more in this name. Here's what it says. It says they took note that they had been with Jesus. Why? Because they were acting like Jesus. They walked and they talked like him. They spoke with the same boldness and authority and joy and compassion as him. They were his disciples. They had listened to him. They had obeyed him. They're imitating him. They're acting as the commissioned ambassadors of the good news of the kingdom come in Christ. These were nobodies. They were nobodies. They're unschooled, ordinary men. But Jesus, in contrast, and by the Sanhedrin's own admittance here, was extraordinary. It caused them to be in awe. Because they remember Jesus shut them down over and over again with wisdom and authority. He challenged them to the core of their hearts, not just their theology. He proved God's presence with him by power, miracle after miracle, and no one could deny them. There is no mistaking that these men had been with Jesus. What about us? Are our colors that clear? Is there any mistake in whose we are? Are there any similarities to Jesus that makes our ordinariness seem not so ordinary? Are we living in the presence and in step with Jesus every day? Do we care about what he cares about? Do we radically love like he does? Are we not just kind people, but do we go beyond that, right? Do we love like love our enemies? Do we repay evil with good? Are we bold in proclaiming the kingdom of God and Jesus as the only way to the kingdom? 
Do we love the Word of God? Are we talkers of it? Are we doers of it? Are we humble? Are we respectful, yet unwavering in the face of pushback and persecution? Are we only interested in making a point or making a difference? Just winning arguments or seeing lives changed? Are we willing to suffer and to risk it all for the sake of someone else knowing the name of Jesus and God being glorified? You see, you and I don't simply get to this point at salvation. It starts there. But we have to live in this abiding relationship with Jesus every day. Because see, you don't know when you're going to be in a position to point others to him or share the gospel. But one thing is sure, and I can promise you this, if you aren't walking, if we aren't walking by the Holy Spirit, if we're not living in submission to that relationship with Jesus, we will not take those opportunities when we're presented them. No matter how much our minds are aligned with the truth, if our hearts and our affections and our cares aren't aligned with his, we'll become quiet, we'll become paralyzed. We'll calculate in situations using the wrong equations. Our hearts will either set, will be set above where Christ is seated or they'll be set on things of the earth and below. We'll either see people through the eternal lens and value that Jesus sees them or we'll see them through the temporary means to get what I might need of validation or acceptance or things that hold no eternal significance for either of us. Jesus said this, he said that the harvest is plentiful. That's not the problem. The workers are few. He said, when you pray, pray that workers will go into the harvest, right? Pray that harvesters would go. And not guilted harvesters, not people who feel just guilty religiously, but grudging goers. Because let me tell you this, it's too hard of a work for guilt to keep you doing it very long. It's got to be more than that. These priests and these leaders, they're put in this place of tension and dilemma. The miracle had happened and lots of people, you know, they saw it. Lots of people are believing the message. Are they going to kill these men like they did Jesus, you know, who clearly wasn't dead? Would they lose the favor of the people who they want to maintain power and control over? Because see, here's what they know. The wrong move right now could wreck them politically and persuasively. So they attempt to use their weak authority to intimidate the disciples and usurp the authority of Jesus. Look at the next verse. Verse 18, it says, Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, and I love this verse, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Peter makes this resolution, this public resolve right here in the face of the threats of the Sanhedrin. He essentially says to them, what's right for me to do? Obey God or obey you? That's something I cannot do. I cannot obey you over God. This is the church throwing down the gauntlet, basically. You know, things would have gone very differently if Peter had conceded to the demands of the Sanhedrin that day. Jesus taught his men over and over again, he who loves me will keep my commands. He who loves my father will do what I say. So here in this moment, Peter is saying, if I have to choose between obeying God and losing in this life versus obeying you and losing in the next, I've already made my choice. 
we cannot help but to speak about the things we have seen and heard. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. This was a historical moment. They saw it. They heard it. They experienced it. This was a historical moment. Moment. They didn't sit around and concoct some new belief system. They didn't get a bunch of Jews together and said, hey, you know what? Judaism's great. Let's fine tune it a little bit. Maybe add some flavor to it. Let's add some new rules. Let's add a little bit more. Maybe I tell you what, let's loosen the noose in some areas too. We'll just make up a big tall tale and we'll convince a bunch of people. It's not what happened. They met Jesus. They watched the miracles. They sat at his feet. Peter, the guy that's talking, walked on water for crying out loud. He saw the transfiguration of Christ. They heard his message about the kingdom and the proclamation that he was the king of that kingdom. They watched him get arrested and be unjustly tried and condemned to death and beaten and crucified and die. They put him in a tomb. And they saw him three days later. For 40 days, mind you wasn't like, did you see his ghost? No, they saw him. They touched him. It was too big of a deal. Not only that, at a very personal level, every one of them had been met in their place of sin and distress. And they were loved by Jesus. And they were forgiven. And they were trained. And they were empowered by Jesus. Jesus had changed their lives personally. Peter was fully convinced, as we read in the passage today, where are we going to go? Everybody else can turn away, but where are we going to go? You have the words of life, the words of eternal life. We've believed, you've come to know you're the only holy one of God. This was too big of a deal not to share. This This event changed human history, guys. It split time in half, right? They couldn't help but share it. I mean, what else of importance is there to share? There's no other way. There's nothing else to be shared. And this isn't like science. You can't just discover this stuff. This is history. History's passed by word of mouth. It has to be told someone. It's undeniable facts that had eternal implications for everyone. So they themselves, they've been forever changed by the love and grace and power of Jesus. Here's what I wonder. I really wonder this a lot. Why is the gospel in our day and age? Why is it on fire in some parts of the world and ablaze and then crawling at a snail's pace here? Are we in all of the gospel? Like, do we understand how big our sin is and how much bigger God's love is? And are we living in a daily awareness and experiencing of that love. Paul wrote in Ephesians, he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through the spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, listen to this, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And I love this next verse. And to know the love that surpasses knowledge. 
In other words, you're not going to figure it out. It's too big of a love. But I want you to experience it. It's a knowing of it. It's an experiencing of this love. I want you to know how deeply loved you are by God. And I want you to live in that love and that awareness and that relationship that's an intimate place. That's what I want for you. The first battle of the Christian life, guys, isn't the possible persecutions that are out there waiting to push you in a corner and silence you. The first battle is getting up each morning and bringing our hearts in alignment with Christ's heart. It means I'm replacing my natural orphan mindset with a mindset of full and free adoption into the family of God through the work of Christ our older brother who loved us and gave himself for us out of the overflowing fullness of his gracious heart. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dan Ortland wrote this, and I love it. He says, we will either work for the heart of Jesus or work from the heart of Jesus. You can live for the smile of God or from it. For a new identity as a son or daughter of God or from it. For your union with Christ or from it. Living in total recognition that I'm loved by God. Look, we're justified and we're brought into the presence of God by that heart of Jesus. Yet we're often pushed against the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone. We have this tendency with, to go into our works-based mindset where we aren't operating from a, from a deep awareness and experiencing a relationship with Jesus. We're diminishing His work and we're, not, and we're resisting his very heart. We're relying oftentimes on knowledge and fleshly efforts to see a spiritual work unfold. And when that's true, I believe we operate from a foundation of fear. And Paul said this, we're sons now. We've been adopted and we're no longer slaves to fear. Peter himself would write later, that perfect love drives out fear. But yet we operate in that way in relationship, not just with God, we operate the same way in our relationship with other people, where there's a struggle of relational leveraging and posturing for acceptance and approval. There's scorekeeping and attempts to control others. There's an anxiety of, is this relationship secure or not secure? My friends in this room, if you didn't know it, no one's told you lately, God's love for you and for me is not that small. It's not that shallow. And it's not dependent on my performance or my perfection. I am loved entirely and abundantly and securely and forever. Because God loves me and he chooses to. Here's what I know. I know this about you because I know it about me. You will only go so far in your faith and in your fellowship of Christ, motivated by fear. But when we're motivated by passion, by the passion that you're experiencing that Jesus has for you, which creates a reciprocal passion for him in return, listen to me, passion will boldly stand. Passion will boldly proclaim. It'll stare down threats. It'll joyfully take the blows because you found something too great too wonderful, so consuming, so life-changing. There is nothing now more important, more valuable. There is no price too high. You cannot help but to speak about what you've seen and what you've heard. 
You found the pearl of great price, my friend, when you found Jesus. You found the treasure in a field, and you went and sold everything else, and you bought the field because that treasure is better than anything else you ever had. The reason people listened to Peter and the disciples wasn't because he was, they were the A-team. These were not extraordinary guys. The reason they listened because there was no other explanation for what they were hearing and seeing. It had to be true. And that's why they couldn't help it. How can they be quiet about something that was so life-altering for them? That was so history-altering for everyone else? Here's your last blank. Fearless faith comes from a mind made up and a heart sold out. Truth and passion together are a dangerous threat to the devil of hell. And so it ends like this, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go. They found no way to punish them because of the people, for all of them were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The punishment was held off for now. There were too many witnesses, too much at stake for their image and their political power and ambition, so they let them go. As I was reading this, I, I was convicted by a thought that the Sanhedrin existed today. Would they have to ask me to not speak in the name of Jesus? Would they have to ask you to not speak in the name of Jesus? Or does our silence, does our timidity, does it embolden the enemy? Is there even a need for persecution? Are we even a threat? If he's not getting in our way, perhaps we're going in the same direction. Because to do nothing is to do something. To what end does our love and our, the experience of Jesus' love and our responsiveness to that love and loyalty, what, to what end does it take us? At what cost will we proclaim the most important message of all time? How important is it to us to get the word, word of Jesus out there to them? Or have our priorities gotten flipped? Would we rather have theological debates in small circles of believers and feel like we're accomplishing something? Or would we want to go out and make a difference at where we work and where we play and where we live life in our circles of influence? Are we operating like the world operates in just the here and now with no eternal perspective whatsoever? No sense of urgency? Are you waking up every day just swallowed up in the love of Jesus and recognizing what he's done for you and recognizing that the only reason you're in relationship with him today is because of the holding love of Jesus, not because you're awesome, not because you figured some stuff out and can answer Sunday school questions, but because he loved you. And he doesn't just love you, he loves everyone the same. I wanted to end with this as a challenge for us all today. There's a prayer. I used to have this on my, uh, in my bedroom as a teenager on my mirror, and I had a copy of it in my Bible for years. It's a prayer called the Zimbabwean Martyr's Prayer. 
Some of you have probably heard this if you grew up in my day. I'm only 30, so <laughs> shut up. <laughs> it was found among the papers of a young African pastor who was martyred in Zimbabwe some hundred plus years ago. And according to Southern Nazarene University, the prayer was passed on by the missionary Louise Robinson Chapman, who served in Africa from 1920 to 1940. Years later, the prayer became known as the Fellowship of the Unashamed. It's unclear if the pastor was killed by Islamic or other forces in that part of the world, but it's known that he was martyred for his refusal to renounce his faith in Christ. Here's what it says. I am a part of the Fellowship of the Unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision's been made. I'm a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My, presence makes sense. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, quality, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer and labor by power. My pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven. My road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions few, my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I will not give up, shut up, let up, Until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, and paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ, I am a disciple of Jesus. I will go till he comes. I'll give till I drop. I'll preach to all who know and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Amen. Would you guys pray with me? I don't know where you are in the room today. I can only testify as one of these ordinary people that Jesus' love is real and it's big and it changes you. It's better than anything else. It's better than any other version of love, any other relationship you might be trying to find it in, any other goods or services the world is trying to give you. I say it as a person who met Jesus a while back. And of all the things that have ever happened in my life, there is one thing I can promise you. I've never stopped and said, I regret that part. I've never regretted giving my life to Jesus Christ. His love is steady and it's strong and it's sure. It doesn't matter when I've been up or when I've been down, when I've been a loser and a failure or when I've been, had it all together. It doesn't matter. His love has never wavered for me. It's held me. 
So I can only tell you as a person who can tell you that Jesus loves you. And I'm not saying that just because I'm religious or because I'm getting paid to. I'm telling you that because it's true. And you're dealing with truth now. And if you don't know Jesus, I beg you, my friend, I beg you to give your life to him. I want you to know his love. I want you to know his forgiveness. I want you to know the freedom that can be found in Jesus. I want you to know the life and the love that he holds you with every day, all the way to glory to heaven one day. And there is no other name. Try as you may, there's no other name. And that's okay with me because I can't imagine there ever being a better one. If you're in this room today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, maybe even right now where you're sitting, would you call out to him? Would you just say, Jesus, I, I need you. I want your love. I'm a sinner. I repent. I've put my hope in lesser things. I'm chasing after all this superficial substitutes that won't ever do it. God, I'm a sinner and I, I'm doing things my way and I need you to save me. Make me your own. Rescue me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. You paid for my debt, and I'm giving my life over to you. Make me your own. Adopt me. I'm tired of being an orphan. I can't work hard enough. I can't be good enough. I get that. So, God, I'm relying on you. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. Would you save me? The Bible says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. If that's you today and you're calling on the name of Jesus, he's saving you. He's making you his own right now. His Holy Spirit comes in and he empowers you from this day forward. He's with you as your helper and he's confirming to you that you are his forever now. And if that's you in a moment, we're going to stand and I and a couple other pastors, we're going to be standing there up front. We would love to know that you just gave your life to Jesus. You don't have to come up here and make an explanation or speech. You just come up here and say, I gave my life to Jesus. We want to pray with you and encourage you. And if, and if at the end of the service, if, if coming down forward here is intimidating to you today, I get that. There's a table in the very back of the room, and everybody's going to kind of be walking out. There'll be a pastor back there at the back table. Stop by. Talk to them. Tell them, I gave my life to Jesus. I want to talk to somebody about it. Because you're part of a much bigger family now if you did. If you're looking around this room and going, that's a lot of people. Well, guess what? This is a lot of people who have been adopted. All of us are exactly where you are. We're all sinners in need of grace, and that's what Jesus gives. And Christian, today, maybe you find yourself quiet when it comes to sharing the name of Jesus. I don't think it's going to 20 more Bible studies for you. I think it's getting before God sometime every day. Just you and Him. Just letting Him love you. Recognizing how loved you are. Opening His Word, His sweet Word, full of promise. It reveals to you His heart and His ways and His mind for you and His mission for you and all the good blessings He has for you. To get before Him. To abide in Him. To be loved. To, to quit trying to earn His love. You already got it. It's there already. Quit. Trust in His love. Live out from it, not for it. You don't have to gain it no more. Let that love overwhelm you. 
to where you're like those annoying lovebirds who just can't keep, you can't help it. You got to talk about it. Lord Jesus, I pray right now if we need to deal business, do business with you as believers, help us to repent. We need revival. Times are refreshing. Lord, would you send that on us? Holy Spirit, would you move in us? It starts with us, God. Let us turn from sin. Let us turn to you. Remind us of the goodness of the gospel. Remind us of the depths of your love. Teach us to go further in the depths of that truth. Transform us. Make us like your son more and more. And out of the overflow of that, God, would it spill out of us on the people every day. And Father, for anyone in this room who doesn't know you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. That's in your name I pray. Amen. Would you guys stand with us and sing?